Welcome to Biz Mafia, where business gets made. Join top bosses as they share their secrets on how they rose to the top, leaving their rivals sleeping with the fishes. You can only hear these unfiltered stories if you're part of the Biz Mafia family. And now, your very own Goodfellas, hosts Brian Taylor and Pat Linden. And welcome back to the Biz Mafia podcast, where business gets made. Today, we have another great guest. We're sitting down with a real Don in the private equity world. Jay Coglin is not just any entrepreneur. He's a co-founder and driving force behind Fruition Partners, a lower middle market private equity firm based here in Denver, Colorado. With over two decades of PE investing, Jay's been instrumental in personally completing more than 50 private equity deals. Jay's also a board member and co-chair of the campaign committee for the St. Joseph Hospital Foundation and a founder and board member of the Mile High Five Foundation which holds an annual mixed martial arts event in Denver. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. First, Jay, welcome to the Biz Mafia family. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on, Jay. Yeah, this is awesome. Great stuff. Super, super exciting. Jay, there's not a ton of um, what you would say tried and true PE funds and investors based in Denver, Colorado. You're one of the select few in that regard. So really interested to get your perspectives today. You've been in the business for 20 plus years now, right? So I think we want to kind of hear a recap from you of your career, your background, kind of your experiences and what led you to ultimately what you're doing today, which is co-founded Fruition and and making investments, uh, lower middle market investments. Sure. I can give you a, a little bit of my bio just to help uh... Helps set the table, if you will. I grew up in Wisconsin, spent you know my childhood in the Midwest, ended up going to Marquette University in Milwaukee, and then after that, landed at Bank of America in Chicago. And so I did leverage finance for two years, lending money to private equity firms. And one of our clients had just raised a fund, a firm called KRG Capital, that is based in Denver. And, and so I moved out and joined them as employee number eight or nine in uh, the year 2000. So I've been basically doing private equity my, my entire career since I graduated from college. And um, KRG was a little bit of a rocket ship. We uh, went from a $200 million fund one in 2000 when I joined to a $2 billion fund four in 2007. And um, wow. I was fortunate to move up the ranks you know, pretty rapidly and made partner for that last fund. And then I left at the end of 2012 to do my own thing. And a big part of that was with a $2 billion fund, you have to move up market. It's just the, the kind of laws of physics and private equity. You can't do a $5 million EBITDA platform investment when you have a $2 billion fund. And so we had moved way up market at KRG where we were doing 50, 60, $70 million EBITDA deals. And I really missed dealing with the entrepreneurs, you know, dealing with the founders of businesses and, and being a little more impactful with both the human capital side as well as the strategy of the underlying businesses. So um, when I left, I uh, started a firm called Lariat Partners, and we raised a fund, you know, had successful investments there. We did five deals. And then my business partner and I decided to not raise another fund together and kind of go our separate ways. And so then I started Fruition Partners. And so with Fruition, we're a little bit different. We um, intentionally did not raise a fund. The, uh, one of the big changes in private equity has been the amount of dedicated co-invests. So real institutional investors that will do one-off deals. 
has expanded exponentially. And the reason for that is they really want to underwrite a deal, a management team, a strategy with a fund. You're, you're writing a blank check, essentially. You're saying, here's my 10 or 20 or $30 million. And, you know, tell me when it's over, what I bought and how much I paid for it and how it did. With a dedicated co-invest effort, you're able to actually underwrite the deal, the team, the sponsor. And so there's just so much money out there. We just really feel we didn't need a fund. And uh, the pro of that is that we don't have any pressure to play capital. At KRG and at Lariat, I woke up every single morning and felt like I was behind on marketing, which is calling investment bankers, trying to find new deals, you know, trying to make something happen. And it's really an asset center management, a capital management game at that level. If you look at Blackstone or Apollo, they're not really private equity firms anymore. They're they're no different than Fidelity or BlackRock or whatever. They're they're big money allocators with a debt strategy and a real estate strategy, and you know, and, and private equity is just one wing of that. For us, what we really want to focus on is doing a few deals that we really go deep in, that we really like, and that you know, frankly, can't fail because if you have if you have um, a wipeout, it really crushes you. Versus if you have a fund with ten deals, uh, you know, you can afford a loss. The negative of that, of course, is that you don't have the dedicated capital to show an investment bank or a broker when you're going to chase a deal. And so you kind of have to convince them that you can find the money. We did one deal at Lariat that was outside of our fund. And then we've done two fruition and, and they've all been two major LPs, institutional LPs. So we're not going around to doctors and lawyers. You know, we're really, we're really no different than any other private equity firm. We just don't have a fund that's dedicated or the pressure <laughs> to deploy capital that comes with it. On a personal front, I've got three kids, you know, two dogs. Um, I've lived in Denver since 2000. As you said, I'm, I'm super involved with uh, St. Joseph's Hospital here. I'm also involved with the Mile High Five Foundation, which is a really neat organization where we we raise money every year for one big event. It's um, it's kind of the the deal guys ball, if you will, where it's uh, you know black ties and steaks and scotch and mixed martial arts MMA, which is a, a ton of fun. And then we give it all to one organization. This year, we're giving it to a group here in Denver called Food for Thought, which provides uh, lunches for kids that are on school lunch programs and, and, and DPS schools. Really neat organization. They make sure the kids have enough to eat over the weekend. Um, a lot of kids, if you're on a lunch program, you know, have to kind of scrounge for food between Friday and Monday. And so what they do is uh, pack a lunch every Friday, drop them off at the schools, and you get to take them home. And it's enough for a family of four so that, you know, big brother, big sister's not stealing the food. So a wonderful organization. And so that's our, that's our big recipient this year of our funds. That's great. That's great. And then thanks for that background, Jay. I, I want to go back to um, KRG Capital. It's like you said earlier, it's a rocket ship, right? It was taking off, doing extremely well. One of the things I learned about Colorado when I first moved out here was that it was more of a middle market, lack of a better word, but middle market focused. And so ultimately, I had to make a similar transition where it was, you know, you're going from these enterprise type deals to kind of figure out the middle market. As you're growing and scaling, are you, give me a better visual. Are you traveling a lot more? What's the geographic location in which you guys are covering? And part two to that is at what point did you say, you know, I kind of want to focus back to the entrepreneur, like you mentioned earlier? Yeah. So the answer to your question, yes. I mean, it's it's not so much more, it's just a different set of characters because the investment banks that have $50 million EBITDA deals are typically a different set than have $5 million EBITDA deals. So you spend all this time developing a network of, of deal sources. And at some point, they're really not relevant anymore. And certain groups in my career have kind of 
match that growth where like a, a Baird or a William Blair or Harris Williams used to do $5 million EBITDA deals that wouldn't touch that anymore. So for those, it was fine. But there's a, a whole, you know, hundreds of groups that, you know, we do between five and $20 million EBITDA deals. And they're not really that useful to you when you get to a $2 billion fund size. So that was, um, I'll say, frustrating. And then, you know, w- w- in the fund environment, personally, I was responsible for you know, more or less four platforms at any given time. And half my time was doing deal origination or fundraising. And so if you look at a given day, um, and every day is different, obviously, but half my time was deal origination fundraising. So that's not dedicated to the companies. And then if I have four of them, you know, I'm only giving, you know, 10 or 15% mind share to any given portfolio company, you know, over the course of a year, which, you know, again, you're, you're more of an asset allocator at that point. What, what I really love is getting on the plane, going and seeing the add-on acquisitions, going and meeting the entrepreneurs, you know, developing personal relationships. You know, we talk about all the time, you know, developing great companies and lasting relationships. That's, that's really what we're all about. And so it's, it's harder to do that, not to say it can't happen, but it's much harder to do that in a larger fund environment. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, Jay. So in terms of fruition, and I think we understand now why you got into that and can understand it, what does the typical deal look like? I know it's all over the board, and but I guess we're curious, is there a particular industry that you really like? What are the EBITDA ranges? What kind of multiples do you see? Kind of take us in what you look for at, at fruition, how you structure deals, so on. Sure. So uh, we say two to twenty million dollars of EBITDA. Typically, it's less than ten, just because above ten, deals start to get shot pretty far and wide. And at that level, you have all these middle market funds that have to deploy capital that are kind of running the prices up on things. You know, that being said, if we have an angle on something, we can get in there a little bit larger. We are focused on consolidation opportunities. And so we love fragmented industries where we can go out and do add-on acquisitions. So if we pain, you know, six times for a company on the downstroke, we can go buy the add-ons for, for three or four times, or sometimes even less when you include synergies. And so you're able to buy down your multiple, which which creates a muted value. But then we're also very focused on not just slapping companies together to slap them together. We really want to create an additive experience for whoever the underlying customer is. And so what it should drive is better purchasing, better service, a broader network so you can cover more states or more territories. You're giving something to the end customer of value. You're not just getting big for the sake of getting big. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So give us a real world example. A lot of us here, fragmented markets and all that. And if we're not in the trenches of, for example, investing, Give us an example of a market or situations where you go, this was fragmented. This was the opportunity. Here's how we went about adding on. And so, you know, we had a transaction that that we had a huge home run on and we just um, did a recap this year. It's in the family entertainment center segment. So experiential entertainment, you know, is a pretty broad category when you think about everything from the, the, the circus to you know, playing golf. And family entertainment centers, the one that's most known, I guess, to people is Dave and Buster's or Dave and Buster's the main event. It was kind of a reverse merger where the main event guys are now in charge. The other big one is called Bolero. It's a consolidation of, of bowling centers. And so you think about go-karts, you think about arcades, you think about bumper boats. That segment we got into with um, a three-park deal in June of 2021. It's uh, the three parks combined had about three and a half million dollars of EBITDA. Over the course uh, between June of 21 and May of this year, so in, in less than two years, 
we did six acquisitions and grew it to 27 parks with about $40 million of EBITDA. And then along the way, you know, built a, a real management team. So we kind of have almost a, a public company level management team. And, and our whole thing is that we want to build it and then we want the next investor to be able to double it again. And so we're very proud of the fact that we build lasting platforms that people, you know, want to buy. In this particular case, we did a recap with a group out of New York called Court Square Capital. They're a $3 billion fund, kind of a, a larger middle market firm. And um, it was unique in that we rolled 30% of the equity over from us and our investors. And then we, fruition, continue to lead the M&A strategy going forward. So um, a really unique situation, but the perfect outcome for us because instead of just building it and selling it and letting it go and all that time and energy and uh, you know all that Rolodex you developed, all those relationships just going away, we got to kind of keep, keep growing it. And they've been incredible partners to us. We now have more or less an unlimited checkbook. And so now we can go out and, and keep doing that. And, and we're doing two things. We're, we're both continuing to do the add-on acquisitions, but now we're opening new centers as well. So we've got another one that's going to open here in two weeks. We've got another one that opened by the end of the year. And then our goal is to open four more next year. And when I say open, these are old Kmart, Sears, JCPenney, where you know it's an empty box. It's 100 or 150,000 square feet. Nobody really wants those anymore. And we're able to go in and put in what we call a micro amusement park. So think about... Um, a spinning coaster, a full go-kart track, huge mini golf, virtual reality attraction called Dark Ride, laser tag, 120 to 150 arcade games, 16 lanes of bowling, a sports bar, all kind of in the same four walls. And so it's really a new category within the space. If you look at a Dave and Buster's or a main event, they're kind of 30 to 50,000 square feet. And so this is 100 to 150,000 square feet. So much, much bigger. And then, um, you're really a much broader demographic. We say that we want to attract guests that are ages two to 82. So you can kind of get the whole family that fits in there versus a, a D&B, which is really focused more on, on young males. You know, it's kind of a date night or I'm going to go watch a game demographic versus what we're attracting is, is really the whole spectrum. That's great. So as you discuss the criteria a bit, when you're looking at potential partner acquisition, you're evaluating the leadership team quite a bit. Talk us through a little bit more about the importance of those teams. How do you evaluate the potential and capability of the teams during your decision-making process? What does that look like? Sure. There's kind of two scenarios. There's one that the entrepreneur built it from zero to, you know, pick whatever number, 20 or 30 or $50 million of revenue in their garage, and they know they need help. And the other scenario is there's an entrepreneur that, that knows they can't really do it on their own, or they don't want to do it on their own. They want to a partner to come in and they've spent their whole career in that industry, but they, they recognize they're not the CEO. And so in this particular case, it was the latter the guy we partnered with originally was a guy named Craig Westcott. He's still involved with the company. He's kind of an ambassador. He helps us a lot with add-on acquisitions. He goes to all the trade shows, but he didn't really want to run a kind of 27 park sprawling <laughs> business. And so we brought in a guy named John Dunlap, who was the CEO of the San Diego Zoo. He, um, his most recent gig was he was kind of the number two guy at SeaWorld. And so tremendous experience in the industry, really wanted to get out of the more corporate environment and go out and build something where he could be extremely acquisitive and, and, and move the needle. And so those are the people we're targeting. And obviously we move very, very quickly. John joined us in, well, basically January 1st of 2022. And we closed two add-on acquisitions and added 10 parks in January of 2022. So, you know, wow. the deep end of the swimming pool, I uh, can't even describe what, what he's done. 
So Jay, that, that raises a, just a question I want to jump in on to be able to move at that speed, just being in the transaction world, that's, that's remarkable to balance that number of deals and move that quickly. So to me, that says you guys must have an amazing sort of transactional team, by the way, your diligence team and all that to move that quickly on these opportunities. What does that piece look like for you? Well, you're, you're trying not to backfill talent, but add you know, prospective talent or um, talent that you're going to need in the future as quickly as you can. So with John, we kind of got him to come in again, you know, the month we closed on these two deals that we really needed somebody. So that was, that never happens, right? That was perfect timing. But what we're trying to do is add people really before we need them. And so in, in this particular company, during the summer of 2022, we hired a guy that is our VP of sales. You know, he had spent time at Club Corp, separately, main event, Dave and Buster's, Fogarty Child. So, you know, was was in group sales for group sales being corporate events and birthday parties and things like that for much, much larger organizations. But they're all multi-unit within the entertainment segment. We added a COO that came out of main events. He was there from store two to you know, 50 or whatever. So he also had seen rapid growth, rapid scale, and all the, you know, attendant issues that come with it, which are, you know, systems and people and pay scales and labor laws and all the little nitty gritty liquor licenses. You cannot believe the amount of things it takes to run a family entertainment center. And oh, by the way, we're in 12 states. So you've got, a, they're, they're nuanced in each state, you know, liquor license. And we don't have anything in New Jersey, but in New Jersey, a liquor license costs $2 million. It's things like that, that that you have to be able to understand. And then we added a CFO, a guy named Eric Hayes, that used to work with me at KRG and then subsequently did two CFO gigs. And so he's a you know fantastic fit because he has both the deal experience growing up at KRG as well as the operational experience having done CFO gigs elsewhere. And so what we're trying to do is add those people that we don't necessarily need today, but that we know we will need in the future so that you're, you're building the platform without, again, slapping stuff together that blows up. And so, you know, when we did, um, we did a, a monster transaction in May of this year as a $20 million EBITDA company that was kind of in conjunction with the courseware recapitalization and had no hesitation at all about putting that in. I mean, obviously there's still the day-to-day growing pains, but here we sit in September and we just had a strategic planning session the last two days, Monday and Tuesday, and everything is clicking along. Everything's integrated and, and now we're ready for the next one. So with this kind of strategy in mind makes a ton of sense, by the way. What are the criteria? You said you can't really miss on one of these deals. What would be the criteria when you're looking at a deal? You go, we're not into that for X reason, or we're not going to take on or get behind this particular entrepreneur for X reason. Maybe they're not going to assimilate with this this bat talent that you kind of bring in before the fact to get to the next level. What does What does that criteria look like before the deal on your end? It's interesting. It's a great question. If you take out where there's just not chemistry, because sometimes you meet people and you're just like, you know, we're just never going to get along. It's really, do you want a partner? A lot of people say they want a partner and they want, they want the money. And they say, I want to roll over and I, you know, I want a partner. But you know, when you break it down, do they really want someone that's going to help them change? And, and change is uncomfortable. And then look, I don't, I don't know anything about our underlying businesses. What, what we're really good at is, is how to scale businesses, how to make sure you don't blow yourself up. And so that part is very challenging. So you, what you need to do is, is really focus on, okay, well, this is going to be uncomfortable. 
you've never had a VP of HR, you've never had a CFO, you've never had a head of sales. And in a lot of cases, the entrepreneur views those as overhead because they still remember when they were having trouble making payroll, which is totally understandable. But you know, you can't have, we had an investment at Lariat called Jason, we had 2,300 field employees and we had no VP of HR. Like, that's crazy, right? Because your turnover is 100% when you have a company like that. I mean, just any business with that many field employees. And it was higher for us because we didn't have anybody managing a process for how we hire and how we fire and how we set wages and, and all that. So that's an extreme example, but that's typically what has to happen. And then with that means that entrepreneur, you know, can't make all the hiring and firing decisions. They can't just arbitrarily set wages. They can't arbitrarily set vacation plans or, you know, that kind of thing. It has to have a process around it. And what we're not trying to do is create bureaucracy. We're trying to create scalability. And most entrepreneurs I've dealt with anyway are usually the company's best salesmen. And if they're the best salesmen, then they should be out selling. And selling is not just to customers. It's also selling to potential add-ons and strategic partners and vendors and, and things like that. So it's really getting entrepreneurs to, to elevate their game and let some of the day-to-day be taken care of by other people so that they can spend their time doing what they're best at. Entrepreneurs that have trouble with that are, are, the, are the people that we have to kind of say, well, you got a great business. Yeah. yeah. It's not going to work. You know, what, what I think is really interesting about what you're getting into, and it's kind of, I think, covering this partnership component with the entrepreneurs that you invest in, is that your scalability it's a little bit different than I think maybe an entrepreneur thinks about scale where they're thinking about kind of revenue growth through additional subscriptions or what have you, your scalability and really this additional component that I, I don't know that every entrepreneur understands with the right private equity partner is yes, you get, you get a capital investment that can get you to the next level, but those resources that you're really talking about and your ability to process and, and put that infrastructure, that's a, that's a huge add. And to allow the ones that will embrace what they're the best at, I tend to find the ones that then go on and have a monster sort of second bite at the Apple exit. Is that sort of a fair assessment? No, yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, again, that's what gives us that great pride. Um, again, as a Larry investment, but often petroleum is a fuel distributor. So selling gas to gas stations. That business, when we got involved, had 11 million of EBITDA, and 18 months later, it had 35. And so, massive home run, we exited, but we put in all those systems. We redid all their onboard truck systems. We hired a new head of dispatch. We hired three new salespeople. We hired a COO, you know, all those things along the way. And then that business today, four years later, is 130 million of EBITDA. So, it went from 11 to 130 over the past five or six years. That gives me tremendous pride. I still have a great relationship with the CEO there still a personal investor in that business that that's really our, our our dream outcome is that we can say we we put the infrastructure in to allow this thing to keep going beyond our ownership there's a great business it has the right numbers and so on what would cause you not to take that investment on or to say we can't scale this in the way we need to scale it to get the return that we expect on the backside. So when you're making that criteria between, obviously there are things like, uh, can I get along with this founder and so forth? But what does that look like? And how does that decision get? In other words, what would be the situations you wouldn't take an opportunity on? Well, as I said, it's all people. And you either have to have an entrepreneur that you believe has the ability to kind of take it to, you know, whether it's double or triple, 
or an entrepreneur that understands that they don't have that ability and want the help to bring somebody else in. Where you get into trouble is you have somebody that still wants to be in charge when when you find out they're not capable, and that that can be that can be really tough. And so those are the, again those are the businesses that we we try to avoid. In my career, it's kind of the opposite of the Warren Buffett you know theory. You know Warren Buffett always says, "Look, I'd rather have a business in a great industry with a mediocre management team than than the opposite." You know, at the size we're dealing with when you're starting with three or five or whatever ten million dollars of EBITDA, the industry dynamics they matter. But the individual matters so much more because you're such a small, small, small sliver of an organization. You're not, you know, Burlington Northern or whatever with, you know, 20% market share of the U.S. rail market if you're Warren Buffett, right? He's a total slave to the macro, right? We are the opposite. With a macro, it matters. But a good entrepreneur can change things so fast inside of a company that the macro environment is much, much less of a factor. And then... Well, and then with the add-on acquisitions, it's kind of the same because you're buying little tiny companies on a relative basis that you can change their behavior, right? And if that entrepreneur can change their behavior, they're typically, because they're smaller, they're even more poorly or inefficiently run than, than the platform investment. And so the the impact of change is even greater. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And, and you said something earlier too that I kind of want to expand on is as you see these entrepreneurs come in, you're able to really help them grow their businesses. What is the number one or a few reasons that they're not scaling it at the right pace? Is it the fact that they are jack of all trades? Like you said, they're doing it all. They're selling and they're conducting the operations and they're almost, it's, it's, they can't make a move because they're a single individual. What are you doing? What are you helping with that really expedites that growth? I mean, Maybe it is the back office, but what in particular are you doing to help them realize like, hey, we can take your business from X to Y? It typically is it's two things. It's that, um, that they're in the way of their own growth, either because they won't hire the people or they won't give them the authority. They won't create that scalable infrastructure. They, they, they don't recognize what their highest and best uses. And again, I'm not an expert on anything, but like I said, most entrepreneurs that I've dealt with are the company's best salesperson. You're the best salesperson, or you're the best technical person, and you know we're not doing a lot of engineering and things like that. But you know, like a Steve Jobs, right? Like he's the guy that has the vision about the iPhone or whatever, right? Our businesses are usually a little more nuts and bolts. We're running family entertainment centers, or we're selling gas to gas stations. So it's number one is is that entrepreneur going to be willing to get out of their own way? Do they recognize that they need help scaling? Not not industry knowledge, but scaling. I mean, we try to bring industry knowledge as well. But you know, someone that grew up and spent their whole life building a business is always going to know more than we are. And we recognize that a lot of firms try to bring in the Bain consultant or the McKinsey guy or whatever. And it's like, maybe there's a little bit of additive there, but usually it's a lot of friction that you're creating in both the relationship and inside the company. The second piece is a lot of entrepreneurs don't have the ability, and this isn't their fault, to execute an acquisition. And it's not necessarily the, the actual integration. It's they can't approach their competitor and say, hey, show me your numbers and maybe we'll do a deal. Because their competitors can be like, no. And I've seen that again and again and again. This is the most logical merger in the history. There, and there are no mergers. There's only acquisitions. But two equal-sized companies, we should put these together. And they'll never be able to get it done. You know, One is because they don't know how to really do a deal. But two is it's just there's that, not that level of trust. We kind of come in and we're this you know, independent third party. And um, you know, I mentioned Jason. We doubled the size of that company in the first six months. I met, though, with the entrepreneur of the acquisition before we closed the platform deal. And on uh, the off in petroleum, same dynamic. We met with the largest add-on candidate, you know, I don't know, two or three weeks after we closed the platform investment. So we can, we can 
get them to have those conversations, engage, share information, and show the value of a combination. We're an entrepreneur can't, and it's not, again, not their fault. That's our job. That's the only reason I have a job is because I can play that role. It's just really hard when you're in the same industry to get people to open up to you, understandably. So Jay, one of the things that, that we noticed here, and you said you're not an expert in any one business, but your expertise sounds like process and scaling in the way that a private equity professional goes about it. You get into different types of industries. What are the commonalities that you go, right? Industry A, totally different from industry B, but we can do that deal and make both successful. Sure. So, you know, and and that's evolved over time. Like early in my career, I did a lot of engineering and construction. I did a lot of well-filled services. I've learned a lot, a lot of lessons. I did a lot of healthcare. And where we've kind of tried to focus more is on services and consumables. And so in the case of often petroleum, selling gas to gas stations, everyone thinks that's an energy company. It's really not. It's a specialty distributor. They make the same spread per gallon, whether oil's at $100 or it's at $20. So everyone's got cars. They need, they need gasoline. It's the number one consumable after food. Right. I mean, that's that's how the world runs and electric vehicles are a thing. And we're going to have to deal with all that. But it's, it's a much slower transition than you would imagine. And the fact that it often continue to grow like it has you know, proves that. So with family entertainment centers and often, by the way, negative working capital, super high cash flow, relatively low capex, five star are family entertainment centers. Same dynamic, negative working capital. You get a credit card swipe when the guest walks in the door. You don't pay your employees for two weeks. You don't pay your vendors for 30 days. Right. So you're financed with cash from the customers, extremely low capex. We're not building $25 million roller coasters like Six Flags. After we set the building up, there's really not a whole lot left to do. You move the arcade games around and you gotta, you know, you gotta buy the latest arcade games, but you're you're not buying a new roller coaster every year. And so what we like is really high cash flow dynamics and fragmented industries where we can buy things relatively cheap in, in, in both fuel distribution and in family entertainment centers, we're paying less than five times for add-on acquisitions. So they're extremely accretive. Now, your platform's not worth 12 times like a lot of healthcare companies. It's worth eight or nine times, but it's still accretive. They're also, you know, heretofore just hasn't been a lot of private equity interest in either field distribution or family entertainment centers. And so, you know, we try to go where there's not a lot of competition. And so those businesses, uh, for that reason, were, were really... I don't want to say easy, but it's different when you're, you know, pick your your outpatient healthcare service. There are a hundred private equity firms in every vertical there, and you're just banging up against each other all the time. Here, you know, we don't have that dynamic, and so that's the kind of the commonality there. I think you're getting into something that that I think is really important for most of our listeners. You just hit it on the head. Cash flow matters a lot. You're not looking to reinvent the wheel, although obviously you're taking your resources and you're trying to 3X it or 4X it or whatever it is that you do, right? But you're not starting a tech company. It's not a venture capital investment. And so talk to us a little bit about what you see in terms of cash flow and sort of expectations year on year to make things look appealing, maybe get us into sort of a a Q of E analysis the types of things that we know is really important to private equity when you're, when you're evaluating whether to approach a deal. Sure, sure. So yeah, so when we kind of come at things, I mean, the biggest thing that I focus on within a quality of earnings is actually what we call a proof of cash. 
So how much money came in, how much money came out, and then what are the differences relative to what we think EBITDA is? And obviously, CapEx is one of those things. Working capital growth is one of those things. But you should be able to bridge all those things to make sure that you're actually making as much money as you say you are. And if working capital is moving, then why is it moving? If it's, it's because you're growing like a rocket ship and, and you have more AR, well, that's okay. If it's because your AR days are getting bigger, even though your growth is modest, then, then that's a problem. So that's number one for me from a financial metrics perspective. We also spend a lot of time looking at margins and where margins are and where they can go. As I mentioned to you, we're typically adding overhead the first year or two as we bring in that VP of HR, that CIO, or that CFO. And so you have to be able to justify that with some sort of an offset. Either you're going to grow your top line a lot faster or there's opportunities to, to squeeze margins. And um, at five-star family entertainment centers, we're able to raise prices. Obviously, you're in an inflationary environment, so your wages are going up. But fortunately, we've been able to, to take more price. And price isn't always like, you know, how much it is to ride a go-kart. A lot of it's, you know, buy one, get ones, how you bundle products. If you, if you buy this pass, you get, you know, a free hot dog, you know, things like that, where you're trying to upsell what we call your per cap, your per capita spend. So we don't necessarily care how many times you ride the go-karts, we care how much you spent while you were at our, our facility. And so if we can take that from $20 to $30, an extreme example, that all falls straight through because you don't need more go-kart attendance to do that. Off Metroleum, same dynamic where they were big enough that they weren't pushing back enough with some of their vendors and were able to really enhance their pricing with a lot of their vendors. And then also they were able to raise their, their street pricing. They sell now 25% of all the fuel in Colorado goes through them. So they set the market. I mean, they're a market maker, so make the market. <laughs> and you're not, oh, you know, yeah. you're not trying to be, you know, anti-competitive or monopolistic or whatever. You're just, you know, they literally set their price at four o'clock every day, and everyone else set theirs at four thirty. And so that that's how it works. Jason, you know, I mentioned them as well. They're a clip strip merchandiser. They're in fifteen thousand grocery stores. You know, every Safeway, every Kroger, every Whole Foods. Use your purchasing power and your your pricing power. Not to be egregious, but just, you know, if you if you put it up in the edges and you get 5% on the purchasing and 5% on the on the price to your customers, that's 10% growth without doing anything. So those kinds of dynamics we really look at. And again, what we found with a lot of entrepreneurs, and this is a good thing, they're just not aggressive enough. They don't understand their position in the market. So this really tells a good story about the levers you're pulling as an organization to help them increase revenue. We talked about add-ons. We talked about kind of squeezing margins, increasing the tickets, the buy one, get ones. Those are, you're thinking a little more dynamically than maybe a founder would who's stuck in the business. What other levers are you pulling? Is it, you know, like family entertainment, for example, is it a little more going of the budget going towards the marketing spend? Because you've got these great systems in place for when the guests are there, but how are you getting them in the doors? Well, I guess backing up a little bit, and this maybe answers your question a little more directly, Pat. We are huge proponents of strategic planning. And so there's a, a couple different books out there that, that people have read. Um, you know, we use um, one that's called Scaling Up. And what it is, is how do you create a one-page plan that goes from a very macro level to a micro level? And so the top of ours has a SWOT analysis, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats your mission statement, your vision and values. And then eventually you boil down to, you know, here's our, our five-year goal and we have you know, what we call a BHAG. And then here's our one-year goal. 
and it's to make budget and things like that. But a lot of times it's, you know, we need to onboard a CIO and migrate all of our systems to one accounting system or to one POS system or to one, you know, you pick it right. We need to establish a real HR structure. We need to bring in a CFO and have, you know, appropriate accounting. We need to consolidate our benefit plans. We have six now, we need to have two. And what you do then is you break that down into quarterly objectives and the quarterlies have names and dates next to them. Okay. You know, Sally Sue is going to be in charge of HR. She's going to get us from six benefit plans to two. And what that does at the macro level, when you do the first one, the SWOT, and you update this every year, but the, the first one always takes time. It gets everybody on the same page. Everyone gets a voice. Everyone has their fingerprints on it. And it creates incredible alignment. And then more, as importantly, accountability. And then when you start getting down to the quarterly objectives, now you've got to come back next quarter and like, hey, why didn't, why didn't you get that done? Or you crushed it. That's great. Or maybe you know, something happened in the industry that you know it's not our fault and we need to change. And so that that process, very, very few entrepreneurs do. And it's usually just just that two-day meeting is usually a transformative event for the company. And I'd love to say that we're the smartest guys in the world. There's a million business books and this stuff out there. It's just well, I think it's, it's just it's so hard to do it. fascinating to hear your perspective about how you're underselling your skills, but but you're taking some some basic skills that when you're running a company, an entrepreneur, I mean, you build these things from scratch, right? You're, you're going in a million directions and then you take this step back and have this accountability and structure that really not only brings everybody together, but it just magnifies the efficiency of the business, it sounds like. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it magnifies the opportunities and the threats and the, the opportunities being, what can I do different? to make the business better. And ultimately that should result in growing EBITDA. Culture is a huge part though of growing EBITDA. If your people are constantly leaving, you can't grow EBITDA, right? And so those soft things are still important, but ultimately the way we measure, unfortunately our scoreboard is, is EBITDA. And then on the threat side, you do have to be wary of, hey, this competitor is coming into the market or this new product's out there or this service is going to be disruptive. And how do we get in front of that? Because then maybe we need to allocate capital. Maybe we need to uh, do an acquisition. Maybe we need to hire an expert. And again, all those things might involve taking a step back, but that's okay as long as it's a very conscious and thought out step back. It's an investment. It's not a, it's not a willy-nilly defensive measure. So that planning process is where we identify all those pricing opportunities, all those margin opportunities. And again, I say we, it's not fruition. It's the team in the room and where they're observing and kind of facilitating. But I don't know anything about selling fuel or running a go-kart. You know, I, you know, that's not my, that's not how I grew up. What I did grow up is, you know, being able to ask lots of questions that hopefully uncover those issues. Understanding that these businesses are very unique. And, you know, I like the fact that you're, you're having kind of that whiteboard session with them and working through these things out of that meeting. I'm sure additional KPIs are being created. What are some of the key KPIs that you focus on? Again, you can pick one of the businesses or if there's kind of, you know, four that are universal. We'd love to get your perspective there. Well, and again, I'll just, I keep picking up five stars because they were just here this week. And so it's top of mind. Employee satisfaction. So, you know, everyone's seen Google reviews, five stars. We do internal surveys on employees. And, and ultimately it was, I think it was Marriott or somebody that, that coined this. You know, if your employees are happy, your guests are going to be happy. It all trickles down from that. And if your guests are happy, then they're going to spend more money. And if they spend more money, you're going to have more in the dot. And so our KPI, one of our, our I guess we have four, is guests uh, or as uh, employee satisfaction. And then, you know, right behind that is guest satisfaction. 
And then right behind that is what is our per cap spent? And then the last one is your, your kind of macro top line growth because you can have more per cap, but if you have half the guests, then, you know, <laughs> there's, 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 uh, there's two pieces of that equation. But that, that employee satisfaction is first. And so that's not necessarily intuitive to somebody like me that's outside the industry or even to the, you know, you know, the, the management team inside the company. But it, is, it, makes, it makes all the sense in the world when you say it out loud. It makes your employees are happy, your guests are going to be happy. So, Jay, given you're a, a lower middle market investor and this is on your website, you've taken us through how closely you work with management, entrepreneurs. You can't get it wrong. Let's talk a little bit about rollovers. For our listeners, rollovers basically mean as a selling founder, you're going to reinvest or keep skin in the game. There's different ways to do it. But the bottom line is you have some equity in the game, typically a lower middle market PE like yourself who needs some continuity of management probably expects that, right? I'm guessing. And then assuming that's the case, what what's the... Talk us through a little bit the transaction structure. Do you go, you're going to, you know, you've got to put back in 10%, 20% and for kind of creating that alignment and then the incentive, not only for what you're trying to achieve, but the second bite at the apple where, you know, I've seen some founders who have made dramatically more money the second time around when it worked out with a private equity investor. That's a great point. Uh, it's a hundred percent true. So we call those bites of the apple and how many bites of the apple. And so when you exit your company, you sell a majority, the second bite of the apple is the value of that rollover. One thing that's changed in the last 20 years, everyone used to have C-Corps. Now, almost every company we deal with is either an S-Corp or an LLC. And LLCs in particular are magical entities. You can do anything you want in an LLC. And so the punchline for a seller, an entrepreneur is that the rollover is almost always structured as tax deferred. So you're not paying tax on that portion, the consideration. The second piece that a lot of people have a hard time getting their head around, and it's even difficult to explain, I'll explain it, and and I'm sure it'll get lost in the translation. Pat, I'm sure as as a corporate attorney, you understand it. But the leverage that we put on a company benefits everybody. And people structure deals in different ways with preference stock and cram downs and all this other. Our typical deal is, okay, we're going to pay you a hundred. That could be a hundred million dollars or hundred dollars. We're going to pay you a hundred. We're going to borrow half that. So 50, just like you do with your house. You pay a hundred dollars for a house, you borrow 80 typically, right? We're going to borrow 50. So the equity is now worth 50. If that makes sense. Okay. The debt's worth 50, the equity's worth 50. So if I sell, if I sell half my company, and I give me, fruition, give you, the entrepreneur, the seller, the benefit of my leverage because the 50, right, that I borrowed from the bank, okay, I can sell half my company and have 25 invested in the rollover, right? Well, 25 in the rollover is half the company, right? So the way the deal works on a sources and uses perspective is I sold the company for 100, right? I got 25 in equity back. So that's not cash. That's that's shares in the new company, right? But I now own half the company, right? Because I have 25 of the 50 of equity. I got $75 in cash at close. So I can sell and get 75% of the proceeds in cash, even though I only sold half the company. That is a smoking deal if you're an entrepreneur. That's a great way to put it, Jay. That's a, such a great way to put it. 
and it, it befuddles me how few investment banks, lawyers, whatever, explain it to their clients in those terms. And it's, it's a little hard to get your, your mind around it. But if I believe in all my company, and like, let me get this straight, I can get 75% of the cash today, but I'm only selling half the company. That sounds like a really good deal. For sure. So those are our favorite deals is when the entrepreneur kind of gets that. So I mentioned Jason, the deal we did at Lariat. Those guys, when we sold the company, it was kind of complicated because the initial the initial sellers, the entrepreneurs, rolled 40%. And then the big deal we did, they effectively got 15 So we only owned, the outside investors only owned 45% of the company the day we, we exited. Management owned 55%. Because it's an LLC, though, we can control it. We, sure. we control the board. You know, we decide when to sell and all those kinds of things. Similarly, off in Petroleum, the Larry deal, um, when we exited that one, the, the management team owned 45%. And so those are great outcomes. And for, for both of those deals, the, the second bite was worth more than the first bite. And for often, you know, the third bite on that deal is going to be worth even more than the second bite. And so it's, it's wild. If you believe in your business and you want to stay involved, you want to keep driving, you know, it's really a compounding impact. And, and, and look, a strong entrepreneur, they're going to get there on their own anyway. So I'm just making this up. You want to grow from 10 to 50 of EBITDA in 10 years, I bet you get there on your own. We can help you do it in two or three or four or some faster time frame. And so giving up that little bit of ownership to get there that much faster and hopefully have a lot more fun. While you're doing it, right? It's really awesome to hear a true pro kind of explain this because I think founders often, especially early stage, I mean, probably not as much as to the level where you get involved, but they just overvalue equity. And it's the old, you'd rather own a smaller percentage of something that's going to be way more valuable, way more creative than to keep that founder's founder syndrome, they call it, right? It's just, uh, I think a lot of folks don't get that. I don't know if it's because they're so emotionally attached to their business or whatever, but that's a great way to put it. Well, and there's a trust issue. I mean, in, in their defense, I mean, people in our industry do not have the greatest reputation. In 2000, when I first got into this, I mean, we literally start meeting, explain what private equity is. You know, the whole, <laughs> it's like buying a house, you know, we're going to borrow 50%, you know, and they didn't even know. Now, every entrepreneur has two buddies at the country club or the YPO forum in the industry or whatever, where these guys from New York came in and they totally screwed me. And, you know, it was, it was horrible experience, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so that trust factor is a, is a big thing. And, and, the, and the good news on that, the flip of that is I think entrepreneurs have finally realized that it's not about getting the absolute last penny. Like if I'm going to give you 95 and this other guy from New York is going to give you a hundred, doing a deal with me at 95 might be better because you're getting married. I mean, most of us spend more waking hours at work than we do with our families. You are literally jumping into bed together for the next five years. And yeah. so you better really like, you know, that partner. And the, the, the crazy part about our, our process, when an investment bank runs a process, they send a bunch of books out and then they have, you know, they, they narrow it down to like six or seven management meetings. And then you have the management meeting and a dinner. And then you're deciding, okay, I'm going to sign an LOI and go exclusive with this guy based on a management meeting and a dinner. Whereas I don't know how many dates you guys went on with your wife before you got married, but there's probably more than one, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's so true, Jay. Yeah. Jay, where I've represented, I mean, recently, my most recent private equity deal where I was on the 
company side, they had, I mean, it was a good company in a nice industry, but they had a lot of improvements they could and needed to make. They signed up with the wrong investment banker who wasn't, wasn't that helpful and um, just had no concept of these types of things. And we're so focused on the top line price. It was like, that's just one component, right? I mean, in my view, and I'm curious yours, in most private equity deals, there's sort of a minimum of two, maybe three components. That's the price, the cash you're going to get it closed, the rollover, who's going to be the right partner to really maximize that? Who's going to be the right partner to make your life sane in running the company after the fact? It's not one of these in most cases, I'm going to sell and then I'm out and I'm, I'm, you know, like selling a selling house, for example. Is that a fair way to put it? And I think they get lost in this number and don't take into account what you were just saying is you're getting married and there's still a lot of money on the table as well as your day-to-day happiness. That's it. And, you know, for most of these guys, look, your lifestyle is not changing. If, if we buy your company for $50 million and you've been pulling... $10 million a year out of it for the last five years. I mean, you're not, you're not buying a bigger house or going on a nicer vacation. I mean, right. you do it cause you love it and you do it cause you need something to do. I mean, I know I can't retire. I, I you know, I, I kind of tried and it didn't, it didn't work very well. It's about that drive. It's about growing something. It's about building something. It's about being satisfied when you go to the office every day, which you do more than you hang out with your family. And um, if you don't like your partner, you're stuck and you're stuck for the next five years. Or you Jay, can, you know, a question. I'm going to jump in here and, yeah. and, and ask about from the founder's perspective, then what should they look for in that ideal private equity partner, right? If, if someone's listening and says, well, I don't even know where to begin or what questions to ask or what I should be looking for, what advice would you give them to follow to find the right partner? Well, sure. And, and you know, that's the pitch we give every day. I mean, our pitch and most of the other guys that are within two or three blocks of me here in Cherry Creek that are in the private equity world, you know, we're not the guys from New York. We're not the stiff investment bankers, you know, and I, like I said, we've got great partners in New York, but there is a certain, you know, you come in with your $700 shoes and, you know, everyone's wearing the same blue sport coat. It used to be you were in the same suit. You know, for us, if we're going to Louisiana, we're wearing cowboy boots and jeans. I've yet to meet an entrepreneur that wears a, a suit to work every day, much less a, or a sport coat. I mean, you know, is there typically wearing an untucked shirt? I mean, that's, that's the question. Is there, are their shirts going to be tucked or untucked? And when you go in with a blue sport coat and you're one of seven or eight management meetings, you're just another guy in a blue sport coat. And so we try to really um, change that narrative. I mean, part of this is like, you know, the objective of the very first day is to get a second date, right? So how do you just be remembered for at least not being one of those faceless others? As I mentioned to you, relationships are really important to us. So we try to really do something personal that they're into. So, you know, you go play around at golf, you go fishing, you go skiing, whatever that entrepreneur is into, let's, let's get to know them outside of the process. And that's important for two reasons. One, it allows me like personally, selfishly to learn more about them outside of the investment banker script that we're reading from the management presentation and all that. Like, what do they, what do they really think? But it also allows me to get, you know, a sense of their character, hear the stories about their wife and kids the stories about what they're, like I said, into hunting, fishing, golf, skiing, cycling. And then the same thing should happen back. It allows them to see me as a real person. We find that that extra step is incredibly differentiated. And it's amazing how many people just, just don't do it. Like I said, I mean, these aren't like rocket science type things. They're just dealing with people. And, you know, we have a little more time to focus because we're not trying to do 10 deals in a fund and spending all our time finding the next deal. 
So that's our shtick. If you're an entrepreneur, though, you may love the you know New York firm that just calls you once a month to review the financials and leaves you alone otherwise. And there's plenty of guys out there like that too. And that and that's that's totally fine. And there's a lot of really really successful firms that have a gazillion dollars more than I do that do that. So I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong, yeah. but the entrepreneur needs to decide what, I guess, personality type, for lack of a better word, they want as a partner. So let me ask you on the flip side to that, if the founder's trying to position themselves to look attractive to another partner, what should they be doing on their end? Well, and again, it's, it's recognizing what they really want and what they're really willing to sacrifice. And sacrifice is not a, a negative word in this case. It's um, You're giving up some measure of control no matter what you sell the majority of your business. No matter how great a partner I say I'm going to be and we're going to make all these decisions together, you don't own the company anymore. So you are sacrificing ownership at a minimum. Are you also willing to sacrifice you know, day-to-day control if you're going to bring a COO in or a president? Are you willing to sacrifice the direct relationships with the smaller customers if you're going to bring in a head of sales? Are you willing to sacrifice, you know, some guys still write every check, right? I mean, are you willing to sacrifice control of the bank account so that you can bring in a controller or a CFO to actually handle paying the bills? Those things, I think, are what the entrepreneur needs to ask himself first. And then the second piece is how fast are you willing to go? How fast, how much are you willing to work? Because all these changes require a lot of effort and a lot of different muscles that they haven't used before. And accountability, right? Even, I mean, even just the, I've got to show up to the quarterly meeting and I'm going to be questioned on, might not be negative because you have to keep a positive relationship given the dynamic of your investment and what you've described. But that's a change for a lot of people who have been in charge for 20, 30 years, right? That's exactly right. Now, and, and again, this word, I hate using this word. I don't even know where it came from, but you know, with, with, with sacrifice, there should come some benefit, right? So if I go on a diet, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to feel better. I'm going to look better. My clothes are going to fit. You know, I'm going to sleep, whatever. And so that's that's the benefit is like, I'm going to give up control of these certain things, but I'm going to be able to have a much bigger company. I'm going to enter new markets. I'm going to have new products or services. I'm going to have presumably more fun doing the things that I'm really good at and not doing the things that take energy from me or a drag on my time. Jay, I want to run one question by you. And there's so much, this has been awesome so much that we could have got into and didn't get into if we had more time and then close this out. But quickly, there's a massive difference oftentimes in kind of transactional acumen between somebody like yourself who does these investments for a living and the entrepreneurs that you're investing in. And PE deals can be really, really hard. There is some truth to, it doesn't matter the intentions, the deal itself is just really, really challenging. Some groups are harder than others. There's that reputation often. What could a founder do or would you advise to survive and thrive through the transaction process? Well, first off, again, I don't think lawyers and bankers, no offense, are honest with their clients. Every transaction process destroys value, bar none. And that's because you're now spending half your waking hours responding to diligence questions or sitting in management meetings or going to you know, dinners with yahoos like me. Whatever you're doing, you're not working on your business. So by definition, it destroys value. And the longer that process goes on, the more value it destroys. And so the more bitters you have, everybody wants to have you know, 
get the absolute highest dollar. And that means you have to scour the earth. You send out a hundred sims and you have 10 management presentations. So maybe we should have two more. You have 12 management presentations and, and you kind of lose sight of what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, your, your goal is to get a good partner, right? Now, if you're, if you're exiting and you just want the last dollar, you're not going to be involved anymore. Then that's a different answer. But if you really do want a partner, the more you can truncate that process, the better. And so when you're talking to your investment banker or your lawyer, trying to narrow that list of potential buyers to the people that are most likely to transact, that know the most about the industry, that have more than done the most acquisitions, that have the best personality fit, you know, whatever those things are, the faster you can get through that, the better. Because a process that takes six months destroys six months of value, a process that takes a year, and a lot to dig a year. Well, and, I mean, and time kills deals, right? There's the adage, time kills deals. And that's a, that's a real thing. So my advice is pick the three or four logical ones and just go straight to them. And that, that has happened over the last five or six years where bankers are increasingly just pitching that like, guys, we're not going to send out hundred sims. The only thing that's going to happen is all your competitors are going to get your book. Cause no matter how many NDAs you sign, all the lenders talk like old women and you know, they, it's like the knitting circle, right? They're all passing books around and everybody has everybody else's book. Go to the three buyers that are most logical. And if they can hit your number and you think they're the right partners, sell to them and, and cut six months off the process and all that pain and, and, and damage to the company. So that's probably my biggest piece of advice. Like I said, when I first got into this, you know, in 2000, you know, you're still explaining what private equity was and, and you could still fill companies. I mean, you could pay, you know, four times for a company when everybody else had paid seven, you know, in the, in the last five deals. That doesn't happen anymore. Everybody more or less knows what they're worth. I mean, mm-hmm. they know what the comps are. I know what the comps are. The bankers know what the comps are. You, the lawyers know what the comps are. It's just not that much variability. And so that's where, again, it comes down to chemistry, fit, objectives. What are the things you want out of a partner? And if, again, I'd say if you want the New York firm that's just going to call you once a quarter for, for financial results, that's great. Just understand that going in and then make sure you each meeting is meaningful. They were not doing any wasted meetings. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Absolutely. So. Jay, listen, man, you are a true mafioso of the PE world, and uh, it's fascinating. We know each other a little bit, not that well, but to hear your story today, you are a true pro. You Listen, if I had a client that was looking for a, a lower middle market deal tomorrow, you would be the exact guy I would direct them to because I think you mean what you say, and um, and this is the way that that uh, really successful owners get really rich is maybe taking some chips off the table, working with a guy like yourself, and then just, you know, hitting it out of the park. So this has been amazing. Thanks a lot for your time, man. Yeah, Jay, I really appreciate it. it. It's been great, guys. Thank you. All right. And to our uh, Biz Mafia family out there, thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, may your business ventures continue to be made in the best sense possible. That's right. All right. Take care. Thanks again, Jay. You've successfully whacked another episode of the Biz Mafia podcast. Familia, remember, loyalty is everything. Join us next round as we continue our journey through the syndicate of success. Leave us your comments and be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple, or other podcast outlets. Stay sharp and always keep it in the family. And remember, Biz Mafia is where business gets made.